Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Alexandra Minna Stern. She's professor of history, American culture, and women's and gender studies, as well as associate dean for the humanities at the University of Michigan. She also directs the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab. Her latest book is Proud Boys and the White Ethnostate, How the Alt-Right is Warping the American Imagination. If you've been wondering what it means for politics to be downstream from culture, this episode explains how white nationalists have succeeded in changing our discourse and our culture to incorporate their ideas in our politics. One of the ways to think about the Proud Boys is really as a gateway to the far right. And in fact, the Southern Poverty Law Center did a study where they looked at what were the organizations or the people, the social media kind of celebrities that were often the first stop in the journey of someone who was being red-pilled and learning that modernity and modern liberalism with all of its diversity speak and claims of egalitarianism and feminism were all wrong and had misshaped American society and needed to be undone and replaced with something that was more of a natural order. We talk about the rise of social media creating a space for the alt-right, the allure of nostalgia, and the impact of the rise of white nationalism on American society. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. I think maybe the best way to start this is to ask you, why did you write this book at this time? How did you come to write it? So I started working on this book in the summer of 2016, and there were a few reasons why I wanted to write Proud Boys in the White Ethnostate. First, I have done previous scholarship on the history of eugenics and white nationalism and have kept track of groups such as American Renaissance or some of the white supremacist organizations like Stormfront. And I was aware of how they were connected and also not so connected to the eugenic past. I started seeing more evidence of them in summer 2016. I also was becoming increasingly aware of the memes such as Pepe the Frog and the other memes that we today associate with the alt-right that really exploded in the fall of 2016 in the context of the presidential election. And finally, on a more local note, at the beginning of the semester, racist posters appeared on my campus at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, in fact, in the very buildings where I teach my courses. And they were posters that were asserting very familiar tropes of race realism focused on the inferior IQ of African Americans and on the need to protect white women from men of color. And so I became very intrigued by what that messaging was and also by the fact that this had entered kind of my immediate domain where I teach and and live my daily life. So all of that came together, coalesced, and prompted me to decide that I really wanted to investigate the emergence of the alt-right and the resurgence of white nationalism in the here and now in real time. So I began to verse myself in the field of digital studies and learn a lot more about the rise of social media 
and the ways in which memes and comments work and kind of how these toxic cultures appeared in the blogosphere, such as the manosphere, and how social media was creating a space for the acceleration and the amplification of the alt-right. How do you define alt-right? Well, alt-right is an interesting term because it really was the term du jour that I don't tend to use it as much as I did earlier. I now tend to just go straight towards white nationalism or white supremacy. The alt-right became an umbrella space for a kind of motley crew of right-wing dissidents to come together. You had white supremacists, white separatists, different types of misogynists, anti-feminists, and those associated with xenophobia and immigration restriction. We have to remember this is the context of the Obama era, in which all of these groups are watching Obama and kind of this new American liberalism reshape the country in the ways that they don't like because they think that everything is becoming a great big diversity fest that they don't want to participate in. That term really then is utilized by many of these actors and allows them to come together in social media. The term itself becomes kind of a glue that helps them band together. And it really helps propel Trump to the White House. And it continues on until Charlottesville and the Unite the Right rally in 2017, when it's such a disaster for so many reasons that it shifts the terrain and a lot of people who had been connected to the alt-right flee from that term. Many who used to call themselves part of the alt-right now use the term dissident right, which they think better identifies themselves. I think it's a really useful term historically, and I still use it because I think it does capture that moment, which continues on in different ways today. Although since 2016, the election of Donald Trump, we have seen an unbridled resurgence of white nationalism and white supremacy with violent tendencies. So I wouldn't want anything to get softened by just using the term alt-right. Right. I hear what you're saying. But to your point, alt-right is still a catch-all for all of them in one group along the spectrum. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was about Pepe the Frog memes and how this has become mainstream. And in fact, this is the alt-right's main ploy. They believe that culture is pre-politics. So what are their main ideas that have become mainstream? in a way that we didn't see, let's say, 15 years ago. Yeah. So I think that's a really great point. Many of these groups that were working under this broad banner of alt-right, they were really working in the realm that they call the metapolitical. And the idea really there is what Steve Bannon said, which is that politics is downstream from culture. The way to change the political order in the United States is to change culture, to change language, to change discourse. And so part of that was motivated by a true belief that culture needs to be changed first, but also a kind of understanding that it wouldn't be possible to achieve the kind of electoral or political transformation that they desired. So when Trump won in 2016, it threw the alt-right for a huge loop. 
it was both a moment of great victory, but it also was really surprising for them because it kind of reversed that order of politics and culture. So all of a sudden, the political and the political were becoming one and the same, and they were being abetted by, you know, Trump and others on the right who were using the social media stage to both use dog whistles and kind of nods and winks to far right and nationalist ideas, and sometimes just dropping the dog whistles completely and being blatantly racist or sexist or discriminatory in some way, shape, or form. At the same time, that tapped into kind of the zeitgeist of social media and the whole memeing dynamic, that form of propagandizing to certain type of social media advertising, where slogans or memes like Pepe the Frog became exceedingly popular. And people who didn't even necessarily know what that was were using it because they were seeing it in chat rooms, they were seeing it on Twitter. So that allowed it to kind of accelerate and amplify. The metapolitical aspects of the far right has been able to thrive on social media. It really has been fertile ground for it to thrive and to propagate and to kind of red pill and gain adherence. That has been shut down to some extent with the deep platforming of key people like Gavin McGinnis or Alex Jones and others who have been temporarily or permanently suspended. So the terrain has actually changed significantly since about 2019 and over the past year or so as Facebook and other social media companies have faced a lot of pressure to crack down on white nationalists and extremists online. You just mentioned red pilling and Gavin McGinnis. How do the Proud Boys fit in? So the Proud Boys was created by Gavin McGinnis in 2016 as a fraternal boys will be boys type of organization. And it has kind of straddled that hard edge of toxic masculinity and what they like to see as a certain kind of playfulness and that plausible deniability that is so characteristic of McGinnis. So on the one hand, as the Proud Boys chapters were getting up and running and setting up their Facebook pages, their members were posting anti-Semitic, Islamophobic tropes, getting on board with the MAGA slogan and so on. At the same time, they were just having fun doing their initiation rituals where they would have to name breakfast cereals or get a tattoo or not masturbate for 30 days so that they would save themselves for a proper relationship with a woman and so on and so forth. McGinnis has really claimed as the motto, we are proud Western chauvinists. He also said the organization wasn't racist and it wasn't homophobic. At the same time, McGinnis is completely transphobic, which is an essential element of understanding the new white nationalism is its intense transphobia. One of the ways to think about the Proud Boys is really as a gateway to the far right. And in fact, the Southern Poverty Law Center did a study where they looked at what were the organizations or the people, the social media kind of celebrities that were 
often the first stop in the journey of someone who was being red-pilled. In other words, they were taking the red pill and learning that modernity and modern liberalism with all of its diversity speak and claims of egalitarianism and feminism were all wrong and had misshaped American society and needed to be undone and replaced with something that was more of a natural order. At the top of the list, and some of the most popular were Jordan Peterson, the Canadian psychologist who is also very transphobic and has very rigid ideas of social order, and Gavin McGinnis and the Proud Boys. You cannot understand the resurgence of white nationalism today without getting a handle on its intense misogyny and, as I mentioned before, transphobia. Well, one of the things that you said is that the Proud Boys are gateways to white nationalism. And in fact, the alt-right at large seeks to dismantle civic nationalism and supplant it with ethno-nationalism, white nationalism. So tell us, what is the difference between civic nationalism and ethno-nationalism? Well, civic nationalism resonates with nationalist populism, and maybe some forms of America first lingo and policies that are embraced by at least part of the Republican Party and mainstream politics. Civic nationalism also tends to be more inclusive when it comes to thinking about gender and race, so that civic nationalism could include everyone who qualifies as an American. It's often intensely xenophobic, but it might have a multiracial component, or it could to it. White nationalism is obviously white identity politics meets ethno-nationalism in the United States. However, when you see the term civic nationalism, you know you're already trending towards nationalism. You're already trending towards a potentially more tribalistic understanding of us versus them. So civic nationalism is like a discursive escape hatch for some of those on the far right to claim that they're not as racist or white supremacist as they might be perceived to be. So the whole metapolitical strategy is to achieve an ethnically white nation, right? And one of the things that really struck me in your book is that you said that the ethnostate runs not through Aryan compounds in Idaho, but it runs through Lake Wobegon, where I now quote, all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. In a way, I feel like this is very appealing. And viscerally, if people say that, and I'm sure this is how they're culturally trying to portray it, we all have an idea of what that's going to look like. And I think for a lot of people, there is justifiably comfort in that. There is something very reassuring. And I think because of it, in part, many of us still dismiss the alt-right as a fringe movement, sort of like, oh, they just have this crazy dream. But now that it's actually in our mainstream, it's really taking hold. Why is this dangerous? Because I think people are missing that part. Why is this a big deal? Well, I think you point to a very important aspect of the alt-right and kind of the 21st century white nationalism is that it is about hate and it is about those who want to potentially foment a race war, but it's also about nostalgia. 
And it's about yearning for a past that never really existed, but has a strong resonance as this kind of magical utopian white past in America circa the 1950s, before changes in immigration policy, before the real rise of the civil rights movements and some of the other activist movements. That is kind of the golden era. Some of them will gesture towards this 14 words, which is about kind of a white nation for white people. Some of them will gesture towards 8-8 or Heil Hitler and neo-Nazism. Many of them are focused on these nostalgic ideas of an organic, happy America in which white people prospered, white people were the center of the universe, in which gender norms were strict, women were women, men were the breadwinners. I mean, in a way, the MAGA has a little bit of a harder edge, but it taps into that nostalgia. So I do not think we should ever underestimate the power of nostalgia, both in general and in particular among white nationalists. You know, a lot of the tension in the media, and you will see this in specials on cable television, kind of like hate in America. And what is the latest neo-Nazi group that is planning an attack? Then it's definitely important to track all of that. But tropes of nostalgia are just as important to keep track of and can have a very insidious and appealing impact. And I think now that we're in the COVID era and that so much has been upended and it's unclear what the future will bring, this is a moment right for delving into and grabbing onto nostalgia at a time when people want to find hope. You know, fascist and neo-fascist movements have always had strong elements of celebrating the past and wanting to rebirth the past. And in this case, it's a rebirth of the past that has a very strict racial order attached to it. Right. One of the things that you said is that neatness and order control are fascist hallmarks of the alt-right mindset and how essentially there is a longing for a time that never was, of course, where it seemed it was like that in hindsight. In fact, I feel like the alt-right or white nationalists right now are seizing the moment in a way that we should have foreseen, but I think we didn't. And you also argue that the future here in the United States is conducive to alt-right creep. How can you interpret the protests today with what we could see more of in the future, because clearly democracy is not a bulwark against authoritarianism. This much is clear in the last three and a half years. Living in the fear of the pandemic and living in Michigan and seeing the toll that it's taking in the Detroit metro area and among communities of color. And I've done a lot of thinking and I've also done a lot of delving back into the social media to see how is the alt-right taking up coronavirus and thinking about coronavirus and its implications? On the one hand, you have protests like we saw in Lansing, which have an element of nostalgia and let us go back to the status quo. At the same time, it's seen as like, this is our opportunity to run the barricades and go to the state center of power and show that we exist. We're not just the silent majority. And there is an economic imperative that people have lost their jobs and the state is in a tough position that way. That part of it, I get. It's the tactics of the protest and quasi-terroristic elements of these type of protests, which are really scary for people. 
another aspect of white nationalism that I've been studying lately, which is ecofascism. And this idea that the earth needs to be returned to its natural order, which is an order where each race has its own place and thrives among its own species. And I listen to these podcasts in which white nationalists are talking about the actual health impacts that coronavirus is having. There's almost a gleeful celebration of the fact that COVID-19 is culling the unfit, old people with chronic health conditions, potentially people with disabilities, and you know people of color where we've seen dramatically disproportionate rates of death among African Americans in cities including Detroit and Milwaukee and others. I would say that for white nationalists, they would view this as an opportunity to seize the moment and to seize the future, which is very much part of the rhetoric. I mean, they talk like that on a regular basis. White nationalists view this as really a potential opportunity to continue to shape discourse and to gain a greater foothold on the political landscape, abetted by an environment in which authoritarianism continues to be on the rise globally. Yes, definitely. The larger trends across the world are helping the white nationalist cause and not to mention Fox News, the president, and of course, many of the Republicans currently serving the public. So now that they are really thinking of jumping from the cultural to the political, what can be done about this? How can we combat and counter the influence of the alt-right? My focus was to really look closely at the ideologies of the alt-right, which, as we've alluded to in this conversation, revolve around race realism, revolve around strict gender norms, revolve around ideas of nostalgia and seizing the future, and are very much invested in using metapolitical domains such as social media to attempt to normalize themselves and their message. So what I like to do is to track that and to be aware of that and to call that out. One of the hallmarks of white nationalism today is its intense transphobia. And that is because it rejects any form of gender fluidity, of gender non-binariness, and anything that is gender non-binary is the ultimate destabilizer. From my perspective, one of the ways in which we can combat white nationalism, actually more directly than it might seem, is by basically supporting trans rights speaking out against transphobia, making that a key platform of our political agenda, or at least keeping it on the immediate horizon. It's interesting that you say what we should do is support trans rights, which is something that I would not have expected, given that white nationalism is so big and very difficult to counter. And it will be with us forever, I think. But we can maybe make it go back to the fringes. But as an everyday person, what is one thing I could be doing to stay vigilant and not get caught up or avoid getting red-pilled? So at some of the talks I've given, and by email as well, I've been approached in particular by middle school and high school teachers who are very concerned because they see their young white students being essentially red-pilled online. And so they've asked me, well, 
you know, what can we do? How can we work against this? We need to support democratic uses of social media and continue to pressure companies like Facebook and YouTube to have transparent and thoughtful community standards and to call out hate when they see it in overt or coded form. In addition, I think that this younger generation of white people for whom this tribalistic politics could appeal, we need to show the farce of nostalgia and kind of nostalgic memes. Whether Trump wins or loses the election this fall, white nationalism will still be with us. So it is a huge problem with which we have to contend. One of the ways in which we can create positive change and work against this is to think about the ways in which we talk about the future. One of the big concerns for white nationalists is the demographic clock, which they see as ticking quickly towards 2050 when America will cease to be a white majority nation. For them, that is the point of extinction, and that is the time bomb that induces a great sense of anxiety. For those of us who support egalitarianism and celebrate a multiracial America, we should say that loud and clear. We are turning into a country that is an ethno-racial plurality. It is a country that should be proud of that diversity and that heritage and what defines us all as Americans as we seek to be more inclusive of undocumented folks and all of that. We need to be actively, and this is something that George Lakoff, the linguist, has written about for years, is that we need to be more adept and thoughtful with our own discourse. And I'm talking now like discourse on kind of the progressive left to be much more proactive. One of the issues around looking at white nationalism is it's fairly easy to be critical or to be reactive and to say what's wrong with it and to say how it is racist, how it is homophobic, how it is this and how it is that. What we need to do is to think about ways in which we can flip that and be more focused on crafting a positive message and an inclusive message, an ethno-racial pluralistic message going forward and really infuse that in to the discourse and remind ourselves about that and really make that the clarion call going forward for the next few decades. So that would be my main point. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? So over the past year or so, since I published my book and have had an opportunity to speak about it and to speak with others who are working on this topic in the U.S. and beyond, there are two things in particular that make me feel hopeful. One is that I'm part of a growing network of scholars and activists who are working on ethno-nationalism, whether it's Islamophobia or misogyny really across the globe. I'm networked in with scholars who are working on Germany, working on India, working on the Bolsonaro regime in Brazil. I think that the real sense of we're stronger if we approach this as a transnational phenomenon and we think across borders as we do it. And there's more awareness 
of white nationalism and its insidiousness and the toll that it has been taking on American society, at least in what we might call the mainstream media. One issue with that is that there is a tendency in some of the mainstream media to immediately conflate Trump with white supremacy. And it's not that he's not fueling white supremacy with some of his tweets or his nods towards like liberate Michigan. But many white nationalists actually are very frustrated with Trump. They think he's been co-opted by the Republican machine and that he hasn't followed through on building the wall as he promised he would. And so there's more dissonance there than some commentators think. But nonetheless, I would say that growing awareness and having conversations like this over the past year or two, those are some of the things that I participated in and, and that I've seen that I think will serve us well going forward. Great. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and thank you for your scholarship. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. When the president retweets a video of a man pumping his fist and saying, white power, there is no doubt just how deeply mainstream white nationalism has become. In the immediate aftermath, Reddit and Twitch moved to curb hateful content from the president and his supporters on their sites. Reddit deplatformed a longtime forum used by 790,000 subscribers, and Twitch temporarily suspended the president's campaign channel. It's definitely a step in the right direction, but to shift our culture towards embracing an egalitarian and multiracial America will take a lot more. We must call out hate, create a visionary inclusive politics and discourse, support trans rights, and abandon the heady appeal of a toxic nostalgia and a longing for a false world that never was. Stand up for truth. It matters. Next week, our guest is David Fleischer. He's the director of the Los Angeles LGBT Center's Leadership Lab and author of The Prop 8 Report, a comprehensive evaluation of the pivotal 2008 campaign in California. He has been involved in political organizing in a wide range of cities and states for 37 years. In the realm of opinion, nothing can change. But in the realm of real lived experience, everything can change because it turns out people believe their own real lived experience more than they believe their opinions. We talk about countering our post-truth era by changing minds, relating to each other on a human level, sharing stories of the people we love and reducing prejudice. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumpul. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.